Tell me, Brandon, what is best in life? To listen to the Goblins and Growlers podcast, have the listeners driven before you, and hear the lamentations of the fans. <laughs> Hopefully not lamentations. <laughs> uh, what are we talking about today? We're talking about Conan Unchained. Yeah, make sure you have that rising inflection at the end, because it's not Conan Unchained, it's Conan Unchained! Because <laughs> they bizarrely put an exclamation point at the end of it. The exclamation point is very important. It's part of it for us. This is a really weird module uh, from 1984. It's from first edition Advanced Dungeons and & Dragons. And... The weird thing about it is that it's essentially a licensed property, which you don't really see a lot of. It's based on Robert Howard's Conan stories from the 30s. However, there's a big honking picture of Arnold right on the cover of this. Complete with the sword from the film and everything. Well, and he's in costume. It's not just Arnold in like a polo shirt with the sword. <laughs> but yeah, it's from it's from the movie. It's. It's so strange. The first time I saw this, I had to do a double take because I thought it I didn't think it was real because, again, you don't really see licensed properties like this for Dungeons and Dragons materials. No, not really. Well, and it's it's David Cook. What I find interesting is it's David Cook before they started including Zeb in his name. Yeah, this is very early in his TSR career, I think. He actually ended up starting to write for TSR, which at the time was the owner of Dungeons and Dragons because they created it, uh, because he answered an ad in the back of a magazine where they said they were looking for writers. So he essentially did uh, a spec adventure and sent it in and they hired him. Um, we've talked about uh, Zeb Cook's work before. He, he did Earthshaker, that one we talked about uh, last year with the giant robot that you have to take over. Yeah, we we were discussing quite a bit the concept that it seems like the sort of work that probably got shuffled across Zeb Cook's desk. And we imagine he was less excited to do given the material he typically creates. Yeah, you know, he's probably most well known in writing circles for role playing games for being the person who created Planescape, like just from whole cloth. So to look at that and look at this where it's like hey dave we got this deal <laughs> where we need you to write a series of adventures for conan it's all going to be based on stuff from the books with some stuff from the movies yeah so just sort of roll with it and try not to be too creative <laughs> i so we say that it's going to have some stuff from the movies, but the the more we read into like the adventure itself and things like that, it seems like they drew mostly from the book, which is weird because they went to the trouble to license a picture of Arnold in Conan attire on the front of the book. Yeah, it might have had something to do with like Conan Properties Incorporated, which I think is the holding company for all of Robert Howard's Conan stuff. I didn't look this up, but I'm guessing maybe at the time they were the ones who had licensed everything to the movie so the movie could be produced. And then um, TSR ended up working with them, and that's how they ended up getting the ability to use the Arnold image on there. I mean, that would make some sense. Mm -hmm. I think 
I'd be curious to hear more about that. If anybody if anybody knows anything and wants to tweet it at us at Goblins Growlers on Twitter or, you know, us individually as we always call out every episode. Mm-hmm. I'd be really keen to know what that whole licensing process was like. So if anybody knows, send us that info cuz I want to know. Yeah, and you know, before we get into it, it just the whole idea that this thing exists is just really funny to me. I mean, I guess this was back in the 80s. It was before you would see so many specialized role-playing game products. But I guess there were people who were thinking like, oh, you know what I'd really like? A Conan the Barbarian role-playing game setting. But there was also like a dedicated system for Conan back then. And I think actually TSR owned it. Yeah, this this particular book definitely feels very much round peg into square hole. Yeah. Like, that <laughs> they're like there are clerics. They're really rare. They do exist. <laughs> yeah. There aren't you can't really do healing magic. There's really no healing magic, but you'll notice that Conan and his friends seem to heal very quickly. So perhaps it's something in the air or the water or a unique bacteria that helps everybody <laughs> heal quickly. Because this is set in the Hyborian Age, which is this fictional era of lost time that Robert Howard developed that's set essentially between the fall of Atlantis and like the Bronze Age. And there's like lots of lost technology and culture and stuff there. So it exists sort of in its own temporal island. Um, And there are gods, there are goddesses. To a certain degree, there's science because there's metallurgy and stuff because one of the whole points of the movie is the riddle of the steel and how mankind took steel from the gods, kind of like Prometheus and fire. I should mention that right before we recorded this, we actually sat down on a Saturday morning and watched Conan the Barbarian, all two hours of Conan the Barbarian. (laughs) It holds up surprisingly well. Like there's definitely some stuff that it's like, oh, you couldn't get away with that in modern film. Absolutely not. Um, It does have a lot of holdover stylistically from old timey movie making where just there are large swaths of nothing happening and you have to fight to stay awake for a little bit until the next plot point. Or there's uh, very long uh, sex sequences Mm -hmm. multiple times throughout the film. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it, it was just it was interesting. I hadn't seen it for probably about 30 years, not since I was a kid. Um, except for like little bits and pieces, like what is best in life. Everybody's seen that about a thousand times. (laughs) Um, but yeah, so the movie came out in 82 and this Conan Unchained came out in 1984, (laughs) which again is weird. Um, you know, there was a sequel to Conan the Barbarian, Conan the Destroyer. Um, but this doesn't have really anything specific to either of the movies in it. It's the book goes out of its way to mention up front that it's based mainly on the Robert Howard stories from 1934-ish. Um, and that's where they're pulling a lot of the characters. Um, you know, Josh was talking about how they're trying to square peg, round hole, everything. And one of the, there are like two really big instances of them trying to make something work that doesn't necessarily work. And the first is... There are pre-gen player characters, uh, characters from the book, Conan, Valeria, Juma, and Nestor, the Gunderman. And in the back, where it gives like a little bit more fleshed out uh, character sheets and stuff for them, it says, 
basically, well, we're not telling you you have to play these characters, but for maximum enjoyment, you should really encourage everybody to play these characters because they had to sort of bend the rules a little bit to make them work. Um, Because there are specific rules for this Conan setting. And several times in the book, it says, now, we're not saying that regular AD&D rules don't work. Just there are some instances, because these guys are like major heroes and everything, that we have to tweak it a little bit so they can act outside the rules. Yeah, it's it's definitely one of those situations. I know we've been talking a lot about system design lately on the show. It's definitely, definitely one of those situations where it's like, you all probably should have just used a different system instead of trying to make what you were trying to do fit the system you have. Because now you have pregens that don't make sense. Yeah. And you have the inability to create characters on your own. Yeah. (laughs) Because you'd have to break them in the same way. And it doesn't really even have a section in there to walk you through, like, so let's say you want to create your own Hyborian character. There's no, here's here are some things you need to tweak and change. There's nothing like that. It's just, here you go. Figure it out. It has, like, three pages in here of rules that are different uh, for characters and just the world in general. Like, there are uh, heroism and luck points, which is another stat that the GM needs to keep track of. Uh, Because each of the four characters has a certain amount of luck points that they're given. And the GM is supposed to encourage the players to try to do something heroic or out of the ordinary. And it costs them a luck point. But the GM's not supposed to tell them how many luck points they have. So they could literally run out of luck in a session. Oh, so the... Because the character sheets have luck points on them. Mm -hmm. So the idea is you know how many you started with but you don't know how many you currently have? Incorrect. I will read directly from the book. PC luck points. For this adventure only, the pre-generated player characters found at the end of the adventure have the following luck points. Do not tell the players the amount of luck points available to them. And then Conan has 12, Juma has 10, Nestor has 10, and Valeria has 16. And a luck point, um, spending one luck point Let's a player make an extra attack, automatically hit an opponent, climb without falling, uh, catch something tossed at them, leap off a chasm, pick up a man-sized object, tear a door off its hinges, and you can spend more luck points. You could, With two, you can knock out a person with a fist or a weapon, spring from a trap just in time, make two extra attacks. You can spend three, perform a hoic action beyond the scope of the rules. Um, and you can deliver a, a death blow by spending luck points equal to half the hit dice of the opponent. All right, so here's here's my problem with that. Mm-hmm. My problem with that is right at the end of the book, they were very kind to include full-on character sheets with, like, the name of the character and a little bit about the character and then all of the stats and a cool little, like, illustration of each character. The luck points are right there in the character sheet. So they're like, don't tell your player characters about like what you mm-hmm. do. They expect you to do a copy of this, I guess, and then use whiteout on the luck points. Like what? I guess because it says, do not tell a player how many luck points his character has remaining or how many he needs to spend to attempt the chosen feat. Maybe you can tell them up front how many they have. But I guess if you're the GM and you're like, well, what would you like to do? 
and they explain what they like to do. Maybe you as the GM decide how many luck points that's going to cost. I guess that's the idea. And then you say, do you want to spend luck points on this? And they're like, yeah, yeah, let's put luck points into this. And then you either yay or nay it, depending on their remaining pool. Yeah, I I guess so. I just like, don't tell your player players what their player characters have for luck points, even though it's right there on their character sheet. I can can understand this because if you're trying to use a mechanic like that, you need something to sort of shade it from the player or else it's not really luck, then they can meta it. But if you're going to do that, then don't just have it in the book how many they have. You should just say like, oh, well, you know, like roll a d20 at the beginning of the session to determine how many luck points each character is going to have yeah, at the you beginning. Could, you could have the GM roll a d20 at the beginning of the session to determine how many luck points everybody has, mm-hmm. and then, you know, it's a it's a hidden resource that they don't know if it's going to work or not, or how much they have left. Mm-hmm. I'm not huge on that as a mechanic. I think, um, once again diving into my fanboy nature for the star wars fantasy flight rpg Mm -hmm. they have force points which allow you to flip light side tokens to the dark side Mm -hmm. but the gm can flip dark side tokens to do similar things with npcs to the light side and so it's like it it ends up being a situation where no one wants to spend all the light side points because then the gm just gets to really walk all over your team for a little bit Mm-hmm. But the GM also doesn't want to spend all of their dark side points. And so it ends up being like everybody's kind of resource managing a little bit. It makes it makes the GM player interaction a little more adversarial than I like it to sometimes be. But mm-hmm. as long as everyone's using them to be narratively interesting, including the GM, I think it makes it more fun for everybody to know what's on the table and what's at stake if you're using it up. I guess if you're a player and you keep trying to use luck points to do awesome stuff, at a certain point, once you've failed two or three times in a row, maybe you get the, the picture that you're out of luck points for that <laughs> session. I thought I had at least one left. You're telling me I have nothing? So that's like one extra mechanic that's sort of tacked on to this. Another one is the fear checks. And this kind of reminded me of uh, like third edition, 3.5 edition um, Ravenloft, because that was when I first started reading Ravenloft and they had like the fear horror madness checks in it. But basically the, the diegetic explanation of this is Conan is a simple man and he doesn't understand things that are unnatural. So he gets terrified of things like demons or ghosts or monsters or something like that. And he has to escape if he's, if something, if he fails a fear check. Uh, and without getting like too deep into it, uh, the fear check, this just this. I know we talked about how this was first edition AD&D. This just smacks of having your TI-82 calculator out <laughs> while you're trying to play uh, with like an abacus trying to figure it out. It's like to make a fear check, multiply the fear statistic by the character's wisdom. Roll a D100. If the die roll is equal or less than the amount, the character has passed the fear check. If the die roll is greater, the character has failed the fear check. In some cases, the character's percentile score will be greater than 100. If so, the character cannot be affected by the fear statistic of that creature. That's, like, that's not difficult math, but it's also an extra thing that you have to do. Multiply the fear statistic by the character's wisdom. I mean, I think 
in the last 30, 40 years, that was, that's been boiled down to make a wisdom saving throw. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's been, that's been boiled down to make a wisdom saving throw, but it's also been like, here are the pluses to wisdom you get and you just need to pass this number in general. Right. And it's, it's easy with modern eyes to look back on this and, and think that that was silly. Well, I think, I think the other thing is that we need to keep in mind that these are coming from wargaming backgrounds. True. Where, you know, doing multipliers off of statistics and things like that were not only expected, they were encouraged. Mm -hmm. And so I imagine if they were like, well, this is too complex. Let's, let's dumb it down a little bit. The hyper nerds who were really into the hobby at the time would have been like, what the hell is this? Yeah. Kitty garbage. Well, contextually, I guess it's important to remember that this is after TSR split Dungeons and Dragons into two different systems. Essentially, the rules light Dungeons and Dragons and the rules heavy advanced Dungeons and Dragons. And this is an AD&D supplement, not a D&D supplement. Right. Uh, so that's where that comes from, because I guess the people who this was marketed toward were expected to want to do extra math to figure stuff out. Right. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just, to me, that gets in the way of having fun when you're playing. <laughs> well, we've we've been over this. Like, you yeah. and I are not the target demographic for those kinds of rules. We are not crunchy boys. Mm -hmm. Let's see, what else do we have in here? It's got its own unique equipment list. It's not wildly different from anything that you would find in, the, in one of the old players' handbooks. It talks about spellcasters because... This, in certain ways, is a much more down-to-earth system than a lot of other settings. Spellcasters exist. They're very rare. If you find a spellcaster, they're probably going to be pretty powerful and can do all kinds of crazy stuff. We saw in the movie, when we watched that, when Co right after Conan had been freed from his gladiatorial lifestyle and he stumbled upon that, I guess she was a succubus or a witch or something, that lived out in the canyon... Uh, and offered him to come inside and only to find out that she was turning into a demon and then, I guess, caught fire and turned into a ball of fire and flew away and well, was never seen again. Well, he did throw her into her own fireplace before she caught fire, turned into a ball of fire and flew away. So there is that, you know, in yeah. But she grew, she grew fangs before that, though. <laughs> fangs and claws. Yeah. So the fire didn't have anything to do with that. <laughs> Talking about clerics, there are really no clerics with spellcasting powers. Most roles like that are taken by magic users. If there are clerics, they're the ones who might be applying like potions or tinctures if you're having a problem. But nobody really prays to gods to heal you in this because gods like Krom don't care. Krom is notoriously a standoffish and cruel god. Yeah. Like in the movie, Conan only prays to him once. And it's at the end where he's like, I don't care about you. But if you've ever thought about me at all, grant me revenge on these people. <laughs> and then him and his buddy proceed to just wreck this entire crew of Thulsa Doom's goons. God, they ruin the hell out. And there is like a Valkyrie at one point that's mm -hmm. like, do you want to live forever? Right. And that, you know, that was Conan's girlfriend saying that she would, if anything happened to her, she would fight to get out of hell so she could help him win a battle. Yeah. So... The other interesting thing on that note of like spellcasters being rare but powerful is that magic items are also rare but powerful 
and usually some level of cursed. Mm -hmm. Because this is a terrible world where nobody can win. <laughs> no good times for anyone. No. So I, I've thought about getting into sort of the meat of this adventure because it's essentially several different sessions worth of an on-rails adventure that progresses you from war with some bandits all the way to essentially the, the Snake Man's Tower, the, the Thulsa Doom analog in this, which is drawn from the Robert Howard stories. But I don't really want to get into it because there's nothing special about it. If you take the Conan name off of it, it's just a standard sort of low magic adventure where you're fighting bandits, you're, you're fighting pirates, and you're fighting a cult. It is 27 chapters long. Yeah. I just counted. But it's, the book is also only like 30 pages. Right. Each, yeah. each chapter, most of these, I, I guess I should say quote unquote chapter. Right. Because they are, most chapters are less than a page. Right. It's very simple and it breaks down, you know, here's your first encounter, here's your second encounter. It's very linear. I'm not saying it's bad. It just is nothing special when you take the licensing out of it. I think that's fair. I think there is something to be said for if you're going to be running something that's based in a specific world, using specific characters, telling a specific story, and letting the players play out that story, you're going to end up with something that's a lot more video game mm -hmm. than typical TTRPG, where it's like, you could do this one of a few different ways, but you are going to do this because that's the adventure. Exactly. Exactly. As I was reading through this, I got to thinking about how this was this is different from like a Greyhawk or a Forgotten Realms or something like that. And I realized that if you wanted to play this now, your best bet, if you're trying to stay within sort of the Dungeons and Dragons ecosphere, rather than going somewhere else, your best bet is probably to play Dark Sun, because that's what it's sort of evocative as sort of a, a fallen world. Stuff is scarce. Healing is difficult. Every, everything's tough. It just feels very Dark Sun now. Obviously, this is before Dark Sun when this came out, but it, it's almost like it's, it's done it one better. Yeah, my first, my first like, knee-jerk was Warhammer Fantasy role-playing system, but mm -hmm. even that has too many high-fantasy creatures and magic elements to really work. And I got excited when I was reading through this, talking about creatures. There, you get to like page 27 and it's like new monsters. I'm like, oh, cool. It's going to have a, a Hyborian bestiary. There are two new monsters. It is technically correct that there are new monsters, but only because there are two. One is called the Summonings. They're rare and they're creatures drawn from the forgotten and hidden desolate corners of the earth. They like feast on blood and things like that. If you've ever seen the Conan the Barbarian movie, I likened them to when Conan was dead and the wizard was trying to bring him back to life, like the demon creatures that came and started trying to like take his body. I think that's the general concept is they're supposed to be like extra planar monsters. Yeah. They've got aesthetically in the book for this illustration, which by the way, I love the illustrations in this mm -hmm. book. We'll All talk about them are so good. We'll talk about the artist in a minute. I would liken the creature to like a harpy almost, but a little more lizardine because mm -hmm. it's got like these long, sharp talons and claws. Its, it's head got... head kind of looks like a plague mask. 
little bit like a plague mask. It's got webbed feet and fingers, little tiny wings on its back. But I would guess that it flies anyway. Yeah, very impish looking wings. Yeah. And then the other creature is uh, something you and I are both significantly more excited about as people, which is the Manatar. Yeah, the Manatar is so dumb, though. <laughs> it's, it's, the Manatar is a reverse cross of the Minotaur. So it's got, like, a bull's body and a man's top like a centaur. It's, but it still has a bull's head, so it's almost like it just got two extra legs. Well, he's got sort of a man face. He's got, like, man face with bull nose and horns. It almost looks like a cat. <laughs> Do you know that that guy that got the plastic surgery to look more like a cat? Oh, God, yes. Yeah, it reminds me of that. Oh, he does have the the split upper lip. I didn't notice that before, but you're right. We will not be putting a link to that in the show notes. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I just, like... Having it be a reverse Minotaur, mm -hmm. I'm like, that sounds great. And then I see the image and I'm like, well, <laughs> it's okay. It's all right. I'm not going to put that one on the artist. I'm going to put that one on whoever created this creature. Yeah. And then we get into the char the pre-generated character sheets, Conan, Nestor, Juma, and Valeria. And, you know, they're not really detailed character sheets they just have the basic stats that you need to be able to play they've got some equipment and skills and things like that and they have a little narrative description of the characters if you're gonna do pre-generated characters give me something with it make it feel like it's worth my while to play this pre-generated character i'm i am strongly of the opinion that if you're gonna do pre-gen characters you need to do it one of two ways one you make them so vague that the player can choose to use them however they want. Or two, you make them so specific and cool that I don't feel weird picking a pre-gen character. Mm -hmm. And I, I've mentioned this once before while we were talking, like looking back from our position here in 2022 back to <laughs> 1984, that probably wasn't even part of the, the calculus of doing something like this. I mean, the assumption is undoubtedly, like, these are Conan fans who are picking up this module. Mm -hmm. They're going to want to play Conan characters, so we really just need to write up Conan characters. They'll fill in the rest for us because they know the world well enough. They know generally what's going on. If they're new to the system, then their friends will help inform them. Probably. And it's also, the adventure is designed for level 10 to 14. So you're probably not rolling into this as a new player. That's fair. Well, I, I guess I'm more meant like new to the world of Conan. Okay, I see what you're saying. Uh, yeah, definitely don't drop your friends into level 10 to 14 campaigns. <laughs> yeah. And so we've got a color map of Hyboria on the inside front cover in the back. And it's interesting because it's sort of like vaguely reminiscent of the, the Middle East and the Red Sea and everything. And the adventure sort of takes place around that part, but it gives you a map of a lot of the other areas. Like you see Hyperborea, you see Aquilonia, where Conan ultimately becomes king at some point. You see Samaria, where Conan's from, Vanaheim, Asgard, Stygia. It's 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 a cool little map for the time. Um, the only thing really missing that makes it that would make it feel more D and D is if it had like a hex field on it. <laughs> I don't mean that as a bad thing either. 
I mean, uh, having having the ability to say you've been traveling this long, so you've made it this distance is nice. Mm-hmm. And I always miss that on maps like these. But I don't mind, you know, giving the GM creative liberty to be like, oh, it's this far from this to this. Mm-hmm. So it takes you this many days of travel sort of deal. Yeah, there's um, I found a, a metric for that not too long ago. Uh, that I wrote down. I don't have it in my brain right now, but it's something to the effect of like one six ten, like where you can go if it takes you six days or like six days to walk somewhere, you can get there on a horse in like one or two days if you really ride. And if it would take you like, I don't know, thirty days to get there some other way. I forget what it is, but it has to do with like foot, horse and ship. Oh. Yeah. And it just is essentially a conversion metric for it. That's kind of cool. Yeah. I'll have to get my notepad, my notebook and dig that out. I was thinking when it comes to traveling adventure parties, it's mm-hmm. usually like a, you're doing like a forced march sort of pace. Mm-hmm. And so horse riding then is not usually full tilt gallop because horses could only do that for so far anyway. Right. But you would be doing like a like a trot most of the way. And then ships, you presume that you've got some wind at your back. Yeah, I I think that makes sense. Like, I think based on that math, like, horses are usually, like, twice as fast as people. Mm -hmm. Like, from foot to horse. And then from horse to ship, I could see that almost being almost another twice as fast. So Unless you're you're in North Dakota. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there is that. Yeah. Now, talking about my love of the Hexfield maps, we are treated to a couple of those. The inside front cover is a Hexfield map of the area where most of the adventure takes place, the Villette Sea, and it's got hills, mountains, it's got some it's got some towns called out there. There are steps, there's a river, uh, and it even marks out where some encounters are. And it has all the different areas that are listed on the in the adventure. And then the next page is uh, a dungeon map for where you have to get into the serpent tower, Birvetti's tower, and then it's got four levels of the tower as a map, and it's your classic circle with the cross hatching there for the squares. It's simple, but it reminds me of the kind of stuff I was looking at when I first started playing. So there's a lot of nostalgia for me looking at this. It's got a distance uh, map on here. One hex is 600 yards. And then it's got an elevation map and it lists like stairs and trapdoors and secret doors and all that stuff. Just a classic D&D map, essentially. I love how topographical the Valley of Birvetti map is mm-hmm. with the like, oh, this indicates it's 100 feet and that indicates it's 200 feet. <laughs> so you had talked about how much you really like the art and it's the same artist pretty much throughout the whole thing. Jeffrey Butler, uh, he does these great line art drawings of Conan, of the other characters, like the NPCs, the uh, player characters, a lot of scenes of like characters on the step at a camp. They're, some of them are very detailed. They're really, they're really great. But um, Jeffrey Butler nowadays is actually a pretty prolific comic book artist. He was, I believe, the staff artist for TSR back in the day. But he has, you can go to his website, and we'll put a link to it in the show notes, But he has a lot of galleries on there. Um, He's done a lot of uh, work for Green Hornet comics. He's done work for Marvel. Um, There's a lot of cool stuff in there. There's this one shot in the book on page 24 of this room where there's like all these alchemical supplies. There's a couple of mummies. 
There's like demon heads on the wall. There's like a candle making some sort of bubbling concoction. Like it's so there's, cool. There's a pterodactyl and a gorilla. Yeah, like just just hanging in the background, a pterodactyl and a gorilla. Like, God, it's it's a fascinating little drawing. All the little details you can pick out by looking at it. It's it's amazing. Uh, but definitely, if you've never looked at any of Jeffrey Butler's work, go back and look at some of the old uh, TSR stuff. You're going to find a lot of it in there and sort of this black and white style, which is what I like to see when I'm looking at modules. Because, again, that nostalgia factor for me. But like I said, he's got a ton of like modern full color comic book art and he's just excellent. He's done a lot of really exquisite work since his days at TSR. It's it's all well worth checking out because mm -hmm. it's just so it's so good. I like it so much. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes when we look at these older modules, I'm just overcome by a desire to play them because it's just such an interesting, uh, an interesting setting like Expedition to Barrier Peaks or Earthshaker. I have zero interest in playing this one. <laughs> I mean, I love Conan. I really enjoyed the movie. I like Conan the Destroyer because it's got Grace Jones in it and Conan fighting that gorilla in like the Hall of Mirrors. Oh my God. Yeah. But like I said earlier, if you strip away all the Conan patina off of this, it is a standard adventure that just happens to be for high levels. Yeah. If 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 you remove the Conan patina then it's a very railroady standard adventure with some interesting settings and a couple of unique monsters, but not, not a lot. No, this could have been a lot more. And I think this is part of a series of these licensed Conan D&D adventures that came out. So, you know, maybe if you take string all four of them together, I've only been able to find this first one, but maybe if you string all four of them together, you get a little bit more of a healthy bestiary and maybe a bit more of a built-out world. But again, like there's also the Conan RPG system that existed around the same time. Yeah, which I suspect is a little more lenient with the storytelling and how you explore the world. Yeah, yeah. But this is interesting, I think, as a historical curiosity, because, you know, like I said, you don't run into very many licensed games in D&D. &D. It's not like video games in the 90s where you couldn't, you know, turn around and not see about a dozen licensed titles for something somewhere. But the the TTRPG equivalent to Goldeneye, this is not. <laughs> well, I know we found our copy of Conan Unchained on archive.org. Um, I didn't actually think to look and see if it's available for purchase anywhere. I looked around and I found it on eBay and a couple of other places for very expensive. I imagine it being a book from 1984, yes. Yeah. yeah, so I wouldn't count on being able to find a reasonable cost print version of it. It probably shouldn't even be on archive.org, if we're being honest, because I believe probably Wizards inherited the copyright to this when they purchased TSR. This is one of those murky gray areas when it comes to stuff like this, because I don't I haven't seen anything that indicates that they're still actively creating, selling, marketing any of this material. And so it, instead of it vanishing or being $169.93 on Amazon, I feel like giving people access to the resource, if, if let, me put, let me be clear on this, if Wizards came back and they remade this book, and they started selling this book, 
I would be like, well, go check that out because it's more modern. It's cool. You know, it's based on the same material. People worked hard on this and they deserve your money for this. I don't think David Cook is still getting royalty checks from used copies getting no. sold on Amazon. And I imagine that the reason that you can't find it on DriveThruRPG probably has to do with the Conan licensing. Yeah, I suspect that's true. Yeah, because that probably expired 30 years ago or more. Right. Uh, so, you know, what are you going to do? So in that respect, I can understand why it's on archive.org. There's a lot of stuff on archive.org that shouldn't be on archive.org, but they don't have enough people to police it. Like Josh said, this one's kind of a gray area because it, it exists up there for preservation uh, so it doesn't just get forgotten. And, you know, when I was scrolling through and I found it and I just saw a big picture of Arnold on the cover and it was a, clearly a D&D module, I was like, I, I have to see this to understand what this is. But, you know, check it, you know, check it out. Um, it's worth it as a historical curiosity, but I, I could not recommend running this. <laughs> And I will also, just to give y'all a little peek behind the curtain, because we we're talking about archive.org and how we've used it as a resource. Typically speaking, when we find something we're really interested in, if there's access to a legal copy, we go and purchase the legal copy before we do a review or anything like that. Because we want to, basically, if we're telling y'all that you should be going out and supporting these creators, we ourselves need to be going out and supporting these creators. We can't just tell you that and then be like, but that's for everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not hanging on to this or anything. We're just looking at it on the archive website and you're, you can totally go check it out. It's still up there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but if you have any weird old modules, not even weird old modules, but just your favorite older modules or anything that you want us to take a look at, shoot us an email, contact at goblinsandgrowlers.com, or you can get us on Twitter uh, and let us know what you'd like us to dig around for uh read and then talk about because we really like talking about these older ones it's a nice glimpse into history and looking at how D, &D as a property has evolved since the 70s especially uh, especially the writing style yeah because it's such a huge difference between modern day 5e you know source books and things like that versus some of these modules that are coming out of the mid 80s that are just like Sometimes the ideas are completely bananas, but still executed really cleanly and really excellently. You also find a lot more sort of workmanlike writing, like it's a job, not a passion, that kind of thing. <laughs> and I don't mean that to denigrate any of the writers, but, you know, you're not going to love everything you do. And also, if you're one of like five writers at this company that's trying to put out all this content, yeah, some of the stuff you do is just going to be like, Okay, I'm going really simple and to the point on this and just getting it done. Now you're making me wonder how Renegade Game Studios writers feel about creating My Little Pony TTRPG content. <laughs> are they really passionate about it? Did they manage to find writers who are like, hell yes, I've wanted to do this for so long. Or are they staff writers who are like, uh, it's a living. Just because the creative landscape is so different now than it was 40 years ago, I'm sure you don't have to look very far to find sort of the overlap point in that venn diagram of ttrpg players and my little pony enthusiasts <laughs> there's probably a nice pool of bronies out there somewhere to to do this stuff and also i really doubt renegade has any staff writers maybe one and a staff editor because they're probably like pretty much every other tabletop role-playing game company out there where they just do it as contract work you might be right yeah 
But anyways, that's what we got for this one. Like we said, tweet us uh, with your old module suggestions because it's been a while since we talked about one of these, but they're really fun to talk about. You can get me at Way of Brandalore on Twitter. You can get me at Black Cloak DM on Twitter. So we'll keep an eye out and talk to you all soon. Bye, y'all.